to see you here this morning, and I uh, hope everyone had a great 4th of July. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 85, Psalm 85. That's a little bit different. We've been in the letter of Philippians for several months, but we concluded uh, Philippians last week, and now we start a short series in the Psalms. Uh, years ago, and uh, I guess around 2002 or 2003, when I started my pastoral ministry, I started preaching through the Psalms. And so, uh, just about each year, I would take a number of psalms and just preach through consecutively, starting with Psalm 1, and uh, over the years have gotten to Psalm 85 now. And so uh, we're going to work through the next several psalms, and uh, over the next several weeks we'll look at Psalm 85, 86, 87, I think we're going to go to 88, and then we'll take a break and we'll get into something else after that. Uh, but this morning we're in Psalm 85, and uh, the psalms are just full of such encouragement and hope. And uh, I hope that we hear that message of hope from the Lord this morning. So Psalm 85, and um, I'll read the psalm in its entirety, and then we'll consider what God has to say to us from His Word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, the setting for Psalm 85 is debated. There's been different uh, alternatives that have been offered different settings that perhaps this psalm was written in, but most scholars seem to believe that the content of this psalm most clearly reflects the events that took place following the Babylonian captivity. Now you might be wondering, what in the world is the Babylonian captivity? Well, after centuries of rebellion and disobedience against God, the nation of Israel and Judah were judged by God and the nation of Judah was toppled by the Babylonian Empire. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was razed to the ground. And a number of people in Jerusalem were removed from their homeland and resettled in Babylon. They were taken into exile into Babylon. Well, then 70 years passed as the people of God were in exile in Babylon, and God miraculously moved upon the heart of the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon granted the people of God 
the ability to return to their homeland. And so this was a time of great joy, it was a time of excitement, but it was also a time filled with anxiety and uncertainty. Because the people of God were returning to the same location. They were returning to Jerusalem, to their homeland, and so they were excited. But it was a very different place when they returned. It was no longer characterized by the strength and the beauty and the glory of the former days. But it was in ruins. And there was doubt among the people of God that it could ever be restored. I imagine that most of us here this morning believe that God forgives us or could forgive us for our sins. But we might wonder that after forgiveness, what comes next? So, so sin, and this is what I'm getting at, sin is not only an offense against God that must be forgiven in our lives, but sin is a destructive force in our lives that wreaks havoc. And so the question emerges, if, if God is willing to forgive my sin, and He does forgive my sin, then what happens after that? What, what do I do with the mess and the brokenness that sin leaves behind in my life after forgiveness? Does God restore? Could God restore? Is God willing to put back the broken pieces of my life? Is God willing to repair what we have broken and what we have lost? That's what the psalmist is wrestling with here in this psalm. And what we see in our psalm this morning is that the psalmist believes that not only does God forgive, but God restores. So I've entitled our message this morning, a prayer for restoration. I assume that all of us at some point in our lives have experienced the heartbreaking consequences of sin. I imagine there's some here this morning that might be wondering, even now, could God put back, could God put my life back together? Could my marriage, after so many years of struggle, possibly be restored. You know, oftentimes churches wonder this about themselves. Churches wonder, could this ever be a place again of unity and oneness and love and effectiveness for the gospel? And oh my goodness, as we look at our nation, it seems to be increasingly in a moral tailspin. Christians rightly wonder could God ever revive, restore our nation? Could there ever be a spiritual and moral revival and restoration among us? The psalmist teaches us here in this psalm how to seek God's restoration. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. As we do so, as we walk through this psalm, we will see that there are four actions that move us towards spiritual restoration. The four actions are remember, ask, wait, and hope. Remember, ask, wait, and hope. Let's look first of all, the first action that moves us towards spiritual restoration, remember. Look there in Psalm 85 verses 1 to 3 and we read these words. 
Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So we see here in these opening verses, in verses 1 through 3, that the psalmist reminds himself of God's past faithfulness. So in the past, we see here in verse 1, God has been faithful to show Israel favor and to restore her fortunes. And so the psalmist is hopeful that God has done this in the past and he will do so in the future. And the psalmist is especially grateful for God's faithfulness to forgive his people of their sins. You see this in verses 2 through 3. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now, right away, we see here in the psalm, and this is a good reminder for all of us, that the greatest need that any of us have in this life is to be forgiven of our sins. So that before we ever, and the the psalmist models this for us here, before we ever consider how can the pieces of our life be put back together, we must recognize that we have a more fundamental need, a greater need, and that is that we have sinned against a holy God. And our sin against God will separate us from Him. And so our greatest need in life is to be forgiven of our sins. You know, some people think about restoration in such a way that they just immediately, they're like, yeah, I want to be restored. I want all the things in my life to be put back together. I want all the things in my life to be right and good again. But you notice here in the psalm, the psalmist points us in the direction that we are not first to start with, how can I put everything back in my life together? But rather, we are to start with the reality that we are sinners before a holy God and we need to be made right before Him. In fact, any temporal consequences that we experience in this life because of our sin is only a reminder, a a warning of the eternal consequences that we will face if we do not confess our sins and experience the Lord's forgiveness in our lives. And of course, this is the reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to save sinners. Do you remember the announcement that was made to Joseph when Mary was pregnant with Jesus? The angel came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here it is, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to fulfill all the Old Testament promises of the forgiveness of sins. In fact, all the language that we see here in verse 2 of God's salvation and redemption is ultimately realized in Jesus. So Jesus died on the cross so that, as verse 2 says, our sins might be forgiven. Jesus shed His blood so, as verse 2 says, our sins might be covered. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross in our place so that, as verse 2 says, God's hot anger might be turned away from us. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you have not experienced the forgiveness of sins, let me encourage you to hear the call of the gospel this morning and to respond and to confess your sins to the Lord and receive His forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, 
then let me encourage you, as the psalmist does here, to remember and rejoice that your sins are forgiven. I mean, think about this. The psalmist returns to Jerusalem and all of the city is in shambles. And and you can imagine that there might be a sense of hopelessness in his heart, but he can still in that moment rejoice, remember and rejoice that his sins are forgiven. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget the preciousness of the forgiveness of sins. You know, if we have a bad day at work or we get sick or maybe we experience some financial setback in our lives, we might be tempted to think, oh, God has left me, right? Where is God? Has God forgotten me? But the psalmist reminds us here that there is no greater blessing that you or I could ever experience this side of heaven than the forgiveness of sins. And so no matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult things might be, we, like the psalmist, can always rejoice that our sins are forgiven. We can remember and rejoice. So that's the first action towards spiritual restoration, is to remember. The second action that moves us towards spiritual restoration is to ask, to ask. Look there in verses 4 through 7 and we read these words. The psalmist prays, Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So we gather from these verses that the sin of the people has resulted in decline and hardship and pain in their lives. The psalmist here seems to describe a people who have experienced the consequences of sin for some time, and they're weary and they're discouraged. And so the psalmist here prays for two things in these verses, two things in particular. He prays for repentance, and he prays for revival. Notice in verse 4, he asks for repentance. He says in verse 4, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Now, and some of your translations might, might reflect this. That word restore there is actually literally the word turn. And so it could have the idea of God turning towards us, or it could have the idea of God turning us towards Him. So it could be translated either way. But, but I don't think we have to choose Because actually, if true restoration is to take place, both are necessary. To be restored to God is for God to turn to us, and as a result, we turn to Him. In fact, that's what repentance means. Repentance means to turn. I've used this illustration before, but if you've been in a military context before, and you have a commander, and he says, He gives you the command to about face. That means you're going in one direction and you turn 180 degrees and you go in the other direction. That's what repent means. Repent means to turn. And God comes and He gives us the, we're going our own way. We're walking our own way, doing our own thing. And God gives us the command to repent, to turn. 
And what repentance means is we're going our own way and then we turn 180 degrees and we say, okay, God, I forsake my way and I am going to go your way. That's what it means to repent. And repentance is absolutely necessary to experience the Lord's restoration. In fact, Matthew Henry once wrote, quote, all those whom God will save, He will sooner or later turn. If there is no conversion... There is no turning. There is no salvation. End of quote. Perhaps the clearest evidence of God's restorative grace in one's life is the reality of repentance. That He turns our hearts to Him. And this is, the, this is an expression of God's grace and mercy in our lives that when He restores us, He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us in our sin and our rebellion. But He comes to us and He, he grants us repentance and He causes our hearts to turn to Him. And the psalmist prays, Lord, turn our hearts again to You. He's, he's sick, He's tired, He's weary of sin and the effect that it has had on Himself and on the nation. In verse 6, though, he also asked not only for repentance, but he asked for revival. Look there in verse 6 of Psalm 85. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That word revive is actually the word live. It means, will you, will you not cause us to, re, to be revived? Will you not cause us to live again? And, and we know the nature of sin is that sin kills Sin is like a cancer that eats away at a person or a family or a nation until there's nothing left but death and decay. And so the psalmist here is praying for revival. He's saying, revive us. Give us new life in you. Cause us to live that we might rejoice in you. This is the point that I was making earlier and I think is so important for us to see in this psalm is that the psalmist is not just interested in getting his stuff back, you know, the psalmist is not just interested in, in having a pretty city again. The psalmist is not just interested in having a safe and stable nation once again. The psalmist wants those things, yes, but the psalmist ultimately wants God. And he wants the people of God to want God. And that's why the thing that the psalmist is after most of all in this psalm is that God would turn him and turn the people to God and that God would turn to them and grant them life in him. Some people, some people you talk about restoration, they say, oh yeah, I want restoration. I want everything to be made right in my life again. I want everything to work smoothly and, and, and work well. But listen, my friends, if that's all we think restoration is, that's, that's not biblical restoration. Biblical restoration is first and fundamentally foremost about God turning our hearts to Him and God turning to us and us knowing God and walking with God and being restored to God himself. I believe this should be the constant prayer of every Christian. The constant prayer of every church. Lord, turn us. Revive us. Give us real and genuine spiritual life in you. That we might know you and walk with you. So, the psalmist remembers. The psalmist asks. And the third action that the psalmist takes towards spiritual or restoration is he waits. Look there in verses 8 through 9, and we see that the psalmist waits. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, 
For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So the, Lord, the, the psalmist remembers, he asks, and now he waits. But we see here in verse 8 and 9 that as he waits on the Lord and as he waits to discern the Lord's answer, his waiting is not passive, his waiting is active. While the psalmist waits, he listens. He listens to hear God's word. You see it there in verse 8. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. And the psalmist here is really teaching us as Christians how we are to wait on the Lord. We are to wait on the Lord by clinging to his word, and we are to wait on the Lord being confident in his goodness. So you see there in verse 8 how he clings. He says, let me hear what God will speak. He's, he's clinging onto God's Word. And he is confident as he clings to God's Word. He's confident in God's goodness. Let me hear what God will speak. Isn't this wonderful? For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. And isn't that true? As God speaks to us, as he speaks to his people, the Bible is full of promises. Promises to us, His people. Promises of peace. Promises of grace. Promises of strength. Promises of mercy. Promises of hope. Promises of restoration. And so the psalmist says, as I wait, I'm going to cling to God's Word and His Word of promise, His Word of hope, His Word of peace, and I will wait for the Lord. So let me encourage all of us that as we seek the Lord's restorative grace in our lives, we need, to, we need to go to God's Word, and we need to find a text. We need to find a verse that reminds us of the goodness of God, and then latch hold of that text. Make it our own. Remind ourselves of it day and night. This last week, John mentioned earlier that he and his family, they read in the children's Bible in the evenings, and we try to do the same thing. We try to do that consistently. And this last week, uh, we were sitting down in the evening to read the children's Bible together, and we read about the prophet Joel. And you might remember the story of the prophet Joel. Joel prophesied during a time when God brought judgment on the nation of Israel because of their rebellion, and the form of the judgment was a plague of locusts. And we read in Joel chapter 1, verse 4, we read of the devastation of this plague. In Joel chapter 1, verse 4, we read, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust have eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust have eaten. And so we get this picture in Joel that the, the crop was completely destroyed. It was devastation. And so Joel's ministry is a ministry of calling the people of God to repentance. But as Joel the prophet calls the people to repentance and calls them to turn back to God, he, he offers them hope. He puts hope before them, a, a hope of restoration. And one of the most beautiful verses in the book of Joel is Joel chapter 2, verse 25, where the Lord promises through the prophet Joel, I will restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. And so sin has brought utter devastation to the nation, utter devastation to their food source. And, 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 and the prophet is calling to repentance, but he not only calls them to repentance, he not only promises that the Lord will forgive them, he promises that the Lord will restore them. 
that what sin has destroyed, the Lord will restore. I will restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Now listen, there may be some here this morning that need to take that verse and you need to make that your verse. You need to just cling on to that promise. Remind yourself of it day and night. Maybe there's another text that comes to your mind. But as we wait on the Lord's restorative grace and mercy in our lives, we need to listen. We need to wait listening and hearing the promises of God and clinging to those promises and reminding ourselves of His goodness. Of course, God's restorative grace may not always happen in our lives exactly the way we imagine. There are situations, for example, where a spiritual leader might fall in such a way that he or she is never able to be restored to the same role or position that they've been in the past. It may be that in a marriage there's been sin that has taken place that's been so egregious that the marriage itself is never put back together. There are situations where churches fall into such decline that they never actually bounce back. But even in those situations, God is able, God is willing to work His redemptive and restorative grace when we seek Him and when we wait on Him and when we trust in His goodness and mercy. So seek the Lord and wait on Him. Wait on Him by latching hold of the promises of God that remind you of His goodness and His restorative grace. So, the psalmist remembers, the psalmist asks, the psalmist waits, and then fourth, the psalmist hopes. Look there in verses 10 through 13, we read these words. The psalmist writes, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. So what we see here is that the psalmist ends the psalm by looking forward with hope to a brighter and better day. Now I can imagine the psalmist standing in Jerusalem and looking, surveying the devastation, the rubble of the city of Jerusalem, and then praying these words. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. There was nothing that, that he could visually, immediately, physically see that would indicate that would happen. But, but he's believing, he's trusting God for a brighter day, for a, a day to come in which God will restore His people and restore the city. One commentator says that the climax in these verses is one of the most satisfying descriptions of concord, spiritual, moral, and material to be found anywhere in Scripture. And I believe, my friends, that as we think about our own lives, our own families, our own situations, that we have reason to look forward to the future with a similar optimism. Because we know the same God 
that the psalmist is speaking of here. He is a God full of grace and mercy and compassion. He is a God who does not treat us according to our sins. You know, the story of our church is a story of God's restoring grace. About four years ago, Berea Baptist Church and Crawford Avenue Baptist Church came together to form the church that is present here this morning. And the story of Berea Baptist Church is a story of God's restoring grace. Berea Baptist Church was founded in 1991. And over the next 10 years or so, the church experienced growth and they grew to about 100, 125 in attendance. Then in that next year, in 2002, because of sin and division and conflict, the church declined to about 20, 25 people. It was in the latter part of 2002, after all of that had happened, that I became the pastor at Berea Baptist Church. Now, I would love to say this morning that when I became the pastor, man, it was great after that. Like, we just took off. It was an upward trajectory from there. We didn't have any more problems, but that wasn't the case. The first five years or so, we struggled. And I was learning and making mistakes, and oftentimes I don't think I made things better. I probably made things worse. But we kept praying, and we kept seeking the Lord, and we kept asking God, revive us, restore us, give life to this place once again. And in 2007, 2008, the Lord was merciful. He was gracious. I had been there about five years. We experienced a a breakthrough, and from that point on, we started moving increasingly towards health and maturity and fruitfulness. The story of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church is similar. Crawford Avenue was founded in 1881, and over the years there were a number of ups and downs, but in the 50s through the 70s, Crawford Avenue Baptist Church was one of the largest churches in the Augusta area. After that period of time, though, the church went through a long season of decline. And about four years ago, when Berea and Crawford began to talk about the possibility of a merger with one another, there was only about 30 people who were left, Many of them, several of them are here this morning in our congregation, only about 30 people who were left who were meeting, not in this sanctuary, but in the small chapel that's on the corner here. And as the leaders of Berea began to meet with the leaders of Crawford Avenue, one of the things I remember right away that the leaders of Crawford Avenue shared with us was that they had been praying for years that God would restore the work here, that He would infuse life into what into this work once again. And by God's grace, my friends, look at what the Lord has done. The Lord has been faithful. He has been gracious to restore us. And He is restoring us. The story of our church is a story of God's restorative, redemptive grace. And let me encourage you. It is good for us as a church to look back at the past and to see what God has done and to be grateful for that. But let me encourage you that as we look back to the past, not to be content with kind of the past glory, but to look towards the future with an expectation that God in His mercy and grace might grant even a greater glory in the future. That the glory that is to come will exceed the glory that was in the past. And let us pray with a sense of expectancy and trust the God for greater effectiveness, for more conversions, more people coming to faith in Christ, more disciples being matured and and growing in Jesus, 
more church plants, more missionaries being sent out, a, a deeper sense of joy and communion with one another in Christ. I believe given the God that we serve, the God that the psalmist speaks of here in this psalm, we have every reason to look forward to the future with hope. With hope that God will continue to restore us and do His good work among us. And so how do we seek God's restorative grace in our lives? The psalmist shows us a way forward in this psalm. We are to remember We are to ask, we are to wait, and we are to hope. Now you might be wondering, well, what happened to the psalmist? What happened to the people of God? If this psalm was in fact penned following the Babylonian captivity, you might wonder, well, what what happened after this? Well, after the Babylonian captivity, God was in in fact faithful and kind to His people. There was much good that happened. And the years that followed, the people of God returned to Jerusalem. The walls of the city were rebuilt. The temple itself was reconstructed. In fact, the people of God went through a season of revival under the ministry of the prophets of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so in many ways, and in these ways, the the, the hope here in verses 10 through 13 of the psalmist was realized. God, in many ways, showed kindness to His people. However, it is fair to say that Israel never fully returned to the glory that she enjoyed like under the reign of King David or King Solomon, which had taken place so many years prior. You see, God had a greater glory in mind for His people. You notice in our psalm that God's promises to His people are very closely associated to the land. Did you catch that as we were reading through? Notice at the beginning, the psalmist begins by praising God for His provision for the land. Verse 1, look there. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. And then he concludes the psalm as well with this sense of hope that God will once again bless the land. Verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. And then if you go up just a few more verses, you see in verse 9, again, a reference to the land. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So, So here's the hope that the psalmist has. This is the hope of the people of God in the Old Testament, that God's people will dwell in God's land with God's glory. That's the hope of the people of God. That's the hope of the psalmist here. God's glory will dwell with God's people in God's land. It really is the hope of the garden. You remember way back in the Garden of Eden? Right? Adam and Eve, God's people, in the garden, God's land, with God, God's glory dwelling among them. This is the hope of the psalmist. This is the hope of the people of God that that, that the reality of Eden will be restored. God's people will dwell with God in God's land. Well, after the Babylonian captivity, again, much good happened, but because of the sin of the people, because of the brokenness of this world, that reality was never fully realized. And so what did the people do? 
Well, like the psalmist, many of them continued to remember and to ask and to wait and to hope. And then Jesus came. And who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came from the glory of the Father to dwell among us. God and His glory with God's people in God's land. And what was the effect? What was the effect of Jesus' ministry? You remember how Jesus described His ministry in the Gospel of Luke? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Do you see, when Jesus came, God's kingdom invaded this fallen world. And, and the people of God experienced on a whole new level the restorative grace of God, the redeeming grace of God. And, and the ministry of Jesus, it sounds a lot like the idyllic vision here in verses 10 through 14, doesn't it? Or 10 through 13. In Jesus, the reality of God's redeeming, restoring grace was breaking into the world. And that, my friends, was just a taste of what's to come. As we know, after Jesus' short three years of ministry, He was crucified and then raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father where He continues to redeem and restore individual lives and families and churches. And He has given us the promise that He will come again. And what is the promise when He comes again? I will make all things new. Full redemption. Full restoration for our individual lives and for all creation. And so what do we do until that time? We remember. He's forgiven us of our sins. We have every reason to rejoice. We ask Oh God, would you turn us to you and would you turn yourself to us that we might know your life? We wait. We cling to the promise. He will make all things new. And we hope, we hope there is coming a day when God in the Lord Jesus Christ will restore all things for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in a world that is marked by the fallenness and brokenness and heartbreak of sin, that You have invaded this world with hope. With a hope that touches our lives now and offers redeeming and restoring grace. And with a hope that will fully be realized when You make all things new. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe have lost hope, who feel like sin has reached such, wreaked such havoc in their lives that it, it could never be put back together. Lord, I pray that even through this psalm that You would restore their hope in You.
Lord, I also pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would be a people who are continually looking to You in hope, believing You and trusting You, Lord, for new life. I pray, Father, that as a church, You would constantly be turning us to You and that You would turn to us to look upon us with Your favor and Your mercy and love. And Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the day that is to come when You will truly restore all things and make all things new. As we come to the Lord's table and we remember that all the promises that You offer us, all the hope You have given us has come to us through the death and resurrection of Your Son, we pray, Lord, that this would be a time of worship, a time where our hope is renewed as we take the body and the blood. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.